2: Another species of oliva, so this is also sea lettuce. So these are tiny little clusters at the moment that look like beautiful little stars. In terms of eating, we've actually toasted these in the oven with some soy and sesame, and they're really delicious.
1: Kiora, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko klerken Humans have eaten certain seaweeds for centuries, but Dr. Marie Magnuson and her colleagues at the University of Waikato's macroalgae research facility have been getting quite creative.
2: I've been baking it into homemade pasta and uh, we've got a a German colleague who's been making bagels with um, sprinkles of dried seaweed and we had an adventurous colleague in my previous job who made seaweed and lime ice cream and that was quite (laughs) polarising.
1: Marie leads the Macroalgal Biotechnology Programme from the specially built facilities at the university's Coastal Marine Field Station at Sulphur Point. I meet her outside on a sunny Tauranga summer's day.
2: I'll take you to our hangar now, which is where some of the inside work is happening, and I'll I'll give you a bit of an overview of what we do as well while we we walk through.
1: And, as I'm about to learn on a tour of the facilities, their work is aimed at exploring the potential of macroalgae across a wide range of applications, not just snacks.
2: So the programme is all about cultivating freshwater and marine macroalgae. So really we do work from from end to end in the process. So everything from closing of life cycles to cultivating on land and cultivating for outplanting into the ocean and then all the way through to harvesting and processing into various bioproducts. So we have a really applied perspective on everything we do. We're working really closely with industry to actually get seaweed aquaculture and macroalgal aquaculture happening and on the ground and in the water, of course.
1: (laughs) So we're standing in front of
2: some bubbling tank, green bubbling tanks. What is going on here? (laughs) So here's one of our seaweed species, it's filamentous olva. So these are indoors, basically our scale-up tanks that we use to take biomass from our small-scale hatchery to this uh, larger scale, these are 500 litre tanks each. These ones have aeration to keep the algae uh, free-floating in in the culture and then artificial lights to to keep them growing because we are inside. When you say macro-algae, we're talking about seaweed? Uh, yes, so so we tend to talk about macroalgae here because we work both with fresh water and marine macroalgae, so... Um, so and sea- macro means big. And macro just means big, so they're basically multicellular organisms as opposed to plankton, which are microalgae, which are usually unicellular. Mm. Um, a lot of the work we do goes into seaweed, so probably the majority... We've got more species of seaweed that we work with and only one species of freshwater macroalgae. <laughs> so once we go out to the facility, to the farm, we'll talk more about just seaweed. So this hangar is kind of
1: the mid-stage for the macroalgae. Some specimens start off in tiny dishes. Then they're moved to a place called a culture container, where they can be grown in small batches. And if the researchers then want to scale them up, they will move them to these 500-litre tanks. If they need to go even further, they then go out to the Facility for Aquaculture Research of Macroalgae, or the farm. See what they did there? Anyway, that's the next move for this filamentous ulva in the tanks in front of us. So Marie leads me across the road to take a look. So these look like giant
2: greenhouses. Yes. So this is our aquaculture facility. So this is a state that we are multi-million dollar recirculating aquaculture facilities bespoke designed and built for for seaweed and freshwater macroalgae and so what we got in here is two systems so there's a freshwater wing and a marine wing so we've got uh, in each wing we have six of these raceways which we call high rate algal ponds or hedge traps uh, because they grow algae really fast uh, and so we'll go in and have a look as well But there, and there's also six 1,000 litre tank in each system so we got effectively 36,000 litres of aquaculture uh, potential in each wing uh, and it's all recirculating through a sump and being filtered and UV-treated and everything so it's really nice clean water that we're growing this algae in and then for, the, for the seaweed we're trucking um, seawater in that we've got in big storage tanks here as well and that's also recirculating and sort of keeping clean. Uh, So let's go in and have a look. Yeah, they look like really giant bats. They do, they do. And they look particularly enticing when when we just fill them up with water and it's really nice and clear and it's kind of blue a little bit from the reflection in the sky and it's really hot in here so you just want to go for a swim. (laughs) Honestly,
1: this was one of those times. If there had been one filled with clean water, I would have been sorely tempted. It was so hot the day I visited, a 30 degree day in Tauranga, and the heat just intensified as we moved into this covered, giant greenhouse space, with the spinning, slightly whining fan just not able to compete. But as much as I'm dreaming of cold baths while talking to Marie in the heat, that's not what they're designed for.
2: So they're basically a big, a big raceway and we've got water coming in at one end and there's an the outflow at the other end and we've got a paddle wheel that's driving the water around so it circulates through the pond and that will keep the algae in suspension so it doesn't settle down on the bottom and suffocate itself. So these systems are really designed for, for land-based aquaculture of, of algae. So we're using them here A lot for for demonstration, uh, just to show what you can do and to make biomass that we're using for all the products research as well under really controlled conditions.
1: I'll just jump in to say biomass is a term that everyone uses here. And basically, it just means the pile of freshwater algae or seaweed that they've grown up to use.
2: But these are also the sort of ponds that you can scale up because they are so modular and scalable. You can builds similar designs at large scale on land for either just for general production or for specifically for bioremediation which is when you use the, the live algae to take up nutrients from a nutrient rich uh, water source so for example the effluent from from a fish farm or any industry that produces nutrient rich effluent Right, you can connect an algal pond to it and run that water through the algal pond the algae will take up the nitrogen and phosphorus. And once you harvest the algae out of the pond, you're removing all those nutrients from the system and you've got cleaner water that you can uh, discharge to, to the environment.
1: Bioremediation is something local industry and council partners have taken a keen interest in.
2: So here we're working with a, a freshwater macroalgae. This species is an Iligonium. And we're working with Aquacura, which is a subsidiary of, uh, of Quayside. Together with them, we've built a quarter-hectare bioremediation plant next to the Tapuka wastewater treatment plant. Uh, So we've got nine ponds out there, um, and the biggest ones are 50 metres long, so they're um, quite substantial. These ones here are 10 metres, so so they're longer than the the whole greenhouse here. Um, And we're taking the the discharge from the wastewater treatment plant, which is still quite high in, in nutrients, and running that through our algae ponds and then same as i was describing here you harvest the algae out you're removing those extra nutrients and you can discharge uh, clean water uh, cleaner water to the environment it's already approved for discharge so it's just those extra extra levels of nitrogen that are quite difficult to remove that the algae are really efficient at soaking that up for growth
1: Besides allowing them to test run how to grow the macroalgae on a large scale, the farm also allows them to grow different seaweed or freshwater algae in clean, controlled conditions. Which is important when you want to harvest it afterwards to extract a specific component for use. Maybe in animal or human food or in medicine or to get gels or cellulose to use in material science.
2: So because we can control a lot of things in here, we do have temperature control so we can grow it year-round because you can feel now it's really hot. Mm. We're covered by a greenhouse and that's in order really to keep rain out because if it really heavy rainfall, because the tanks are so small, you're risking diluting the seawater or get overflow happening. And also it's not so pleasant for our um, technical staff to be out here in pouring rain. So we we put a roof on, but that has the drawback of... uh, it gets really hot in summer. So we do have some temperature control just to sort of take the edge off for the algae. And because we can add nutrients as well, we do research around how that's adding nutrients and what level of nutrients are the best concentrations to make it grow better or increase different components of the, of the biomass. So for example, if you grow both the seaweed or the freshwater macroalgae in high nutrient environments, they will produce more protein. Um, for example. And, and if you grow them in low nutrient environments, they will be producing more of the soluble carbohydrates, which is one of the other products that we're looking at. So it's all a balance of what you want to do with the biomass. So you can tune the macroalgae exactly. to produce what you yeah. want them to produce. That's exactly the, the word we use as well. We, we can tune them to, to what we want to do. And, and through all the processing and an extraction that we do as well. It's another way of tuning exactly what we want with, with the algae in the end.
1: That brings us nicely to the next stop on our tour. Let's
2: go back up to the lab.
1: So this is the space where you do all the analysis, having grown up some of the biomass?
2: Yeah, yeah. So up here we have a microscopy room for, for looking at both live and, and processed uh, biomass. And then we've got a big chemistry lab now with, uh, with all sorts of uh, wonderful machinery that goes bing. Yeah. <laughs> so we can extract and separate and analyse here and, and find out exactly what's in the biomass.
1: After donning a lab coat, I get introduced to Dr Chris Glasson, who's going to show me these machines that go bing.
3: So this is where we do all of our chemistry. So we do extractions here. We've got instruments for purification um, of the byproducts that we're after. Also analysis. So pretty much the whole whole gamut of instruments required to get from biomass to a product.
1: So the seaweed is grown up in the farm? Yeah. But... Here is where you kind of get down into the nitty gritty of it and figure out what useful compounds are in there and what they can do.
3: Yes, this is where we fractionate it. When we first start with a biomass, we usually start with something like a wash of milled biomass, so dried milled biomass. We'll wash that, and that removes a lot of the minerals, so salt, out of the biomass. And then we'll essentially serially extract different components of the biomass. And then we have the capacity to purify those samples if we want to. or We just go on and test them as as they are.
1: Chris brings me to a small room where a robotic arm is using a syringe to pick up some seaweed extract sample and feed it into a machine that will separate out some of the components and identify what is in there.
3: So it rinses the sample in and out a few times and then it'll inject that into the injection port and then pushed through a capillary, which is 30 metres long, uh, and then goes into a mass speck. But it'll pick up this sample in a second. I've, I thought this was the coolest thing, in robotic arm. When I first saw it, I was like, oh, look at
1: that. This analysis is to help figure out what is in the seaweed and what purpose it could be put to.
3: We look at a range of different products, from cellulose, uh, biostimulants for plant growth and for plant resistance to disease. Animal products, so animal feeds and animal supplements, and that's what this is about. So we work with asparagopsis, which is the red seaweed for um, methane reduction in ruminants. And so we're doing an analysis here of the content of bromoform, which is the active ingredient in asparagopsis, in a sample of that seaweed.
1: And so the idea here is the red seaweed could be fed to cows and sheep and it would reduce the amount of methane that they produce?
3: That's right, up to essentially 100%, but no one ever likes that number. So we'll go for greater than 98% reduction at um, a half a percent inclusion uh, into the animal's feed. Uh, We'll reduce methane, almost wipe it out.
1: But this is just one product from one seaweed based on the active ingredient you find in it. What the group want to do for the seaweed and freshwater macroalga that they are growing is to figure out how to use all of it.
3: So we take the angle that the complete use of the biomass is really our target. And so we'll do something called cascading uh, biorefineries where we'll pull constituents from the biomass for different products uh, until there's nothing left. And so the cellulose is really the end of the end of a run of those products and so it's a residual biomass and you're trying to make something out of it so you're not adding to the waste stream, you just use everything. We do target seaweeds for specific products, for instance green seaweed has a high content of soluble fibre and um, so we will target the soluble fibre out of the green seaweed to start with and then use the residual biomass to make something else.
1: One interesting potential product that has come out of the team's work is a seaweed pill made from sea lettuce that has shown promising results in animal models to reduce metabolic-related disorders. Things such as obesity, high blood pressure, low insulin sensitivity to glucose, and poor blood lipid profiles.
3: To take that further, we've now teamed up with a group at Lincoln University, so Dr Catherine Elliott, and uh, Professor Michael Hamlin. And we'll be doing a human trial to see whether those effects that we saw in the animal model will translate across to humans.
1: When will this trial start?
3: Well, the trial will start as soon as I get the capsulised material to them. And so we've made uh, placebo and the all the capsules and, and we're just sending those down to them now. And hopefully we'll start in the next couple of weeks. The trial will take eight weeks, but it has to be staggered because of the, the number of people that we've got. So it's we're sort of hoping to have it finished in the next two to three months.
1: Do you know how many people are on the trial?
3: There's 22 in each treatment, so 44 in total.
1: So 22 will get a seaweed pill and 22 will get a placebo pill.
3: That's right, yeah. And so uh, we'll be measuring uh, cardiovascular health in the in the patients, Um, and also we'll be looking at um, uh, stool samples uh, to look at the effect on the microbiome.
1: So I've seen the hangar and the farm, where the chosen macroalgae gets grown at scale. I've seen the chemistry lab, where the harvested macroalgae gets separated out into different fractions and analysed for its properties and turned into products. But I'm missing a step. That first step where native New Zealand seaweed from the Bay of Plenty is harvested and then brought to the facility for initial growing tests. To find out about this, I need to go to the final stop on the tour.
0: So this is what we call our culture con, uh, which is short for culture container. It's a shipping container, a 20 foot shipping container that we've modified to turn into an algal lab. So it's temperature controlled. We keep it around a a somewhat constant 18 degrees. Um, And then we've got lights, special grow lights for the algae. You can see we've got lots of different shelving units here with all sorts of buckets and jars and aquariums bubbling away with mostly green stuff moving in them.
1: This is Dr. Rebecca Lawton. And also in this shipping container, amongst the bubbling buckets of mostly green seaweed, is someone hard at work, keeping the algae fed and, well, watered.
4: My name's Peter. I'm an algae technician or ocean gardener, as I like to say sometimes.
1: Peter Randup is a marine biologist and the work he does is foundational for the program.
4: So my job is to grow seaweed and keep them all healthy and looking good. So I'm just pouring uh, pouring the um, algae through into a net to drain the water. Um, and I'll leave the net aside, give it a, a rinse and a scrub.
1: So these are just little plastic buckets that the algae are sitting in?
4: Uh, yeah, this is it's quite a... Um, but a cheap, easy way to, uh, to grow the algae is we've got these little 1 litre plastic buckets with a little hole in the bottom that we've plumbed in to provide uh, aeration. And so we pump air in the bottom, which allows the algae to tumble around in circles um, and um, get all the, the gas it needs to grow.
1: And so how often do you have to do this?
4: We do it weekly or as needed but usually weekly is enough so they're, they're pretty low maintenance um, to be honest and so as we're doing changing the water we're also feeding it so a lot less work than say a fish which needs feeding once or twice a day
1: So what do you mean by feeding it? Uh,
4: we've got a special nutrient mix which is specially designed for algae uh, which has all the right ratios of nitrogen, uh, phosphorus and all the other things I won't list them all um,
1: Yeah. There's a lot going on in the CultureCon.
0: We've got a few reference uh, cultures. So we've got different species or strains that we've isolated and worked on and and characterised. So we have those as kind of a library that we can go back to for future research. Uh, We've got trials going on. So over here, we're testing some of our species tolerance to different salinity levels and how that affects the uh, biochemical composition of the biomass. So how do they grow in different salinities and then what can we actually use the biomass that we grow for? Uh, We've also got some student uh, work going on in here so we've got a student who's isolated a whole bunch of different freshwater species out for using uh, for bioremediation of sewage effluent at wastewater treatment plants so she's got some cultures there Uh, but I guess uh, more generally this space allows us to maintain a whole range of different cultures in a small scale that's manageable uh, and also carry out really controlled experiments.
1: And in terms of those reference streams Do
0: you mean that there is some that you just keep growing here and bubbling away continuously? Yes, exactly. So um, these ones uh, on the top shelf up here, we've got, what have we got, seven or eight different um, little plastic containers and we've got, those are all different species of of the sea lettuce. Mm. And so these are ones that we first isolated back in 2018, 2019, and we've kept them in continuous culture since then. We've done a whole range of growth trials on them. We've also done some really extensive characterisation of what their biochemical composition is. So understanding the different components in the biomass that we would be interested in for different applications. Uh, And so we can come back to these in future experiments and look at different aspects of it because we know really well what these different cultivars or strains do and how they respond to different conditions.
1: How many species of sea lettuce are there in
0: New Zealand? So um, that's a really good question, and um, it's a bit of a a changing one. Sea lettuce is notoriously renowned in the scientific world for being really difficult to identify and the taxonomy, so so what we call a species and what's the same species in a different species is really quite um, dynamic and changes a lot in Ulva so Ulva is the genus that, that sea lettuce belongs to. So worldwide currently there's about 90 species but again that's changing. So 10 years ago there were 125 and now yeah. it's really released to 19. Uh, in New Zealand we've got around 19 species. Some of these are species that are not formally identified and characterised, but we know that they're quite different. So, again, that may change over time. But it's probably somewhere in the vicinity of 15 to 20 is is what we have.
1: Of these seven that are sitting here, like some look quite similar (laughs) and then some look quite different. There's kind of a range between lettuce to shredded lettuce to (laughs) grass (laughs) to
0: green hair (laughs) yeah that's that's really a good description so yeah over um the genus that that sea lettuce is from it's got two different morphologies or or shapes and types Um, so we have what we call the blade which is that flat kind of lettuce uh, like one and then we have a filamentous type which is more hair-like but within each of those two categories we get a lot of variation so we can have really fine very thin almost hair-like structures to quite big Almost tubular type ribbons that are, uh, are really quite um, long and, and quite wide. And the same as the blades can be these massive, big, long sheets, or they can be kind of more long, fairly ribbon type things. Uh, and we see that variation even within the same species. It can look quite different when you grow it under different conditions, or it has different sort of wave action, for example, or different lights. So they're very what we call plastic. They're very variable, um, both between different species, but also within a species and between environments, too.
1: One of the important things that Rebecca's role involves is species selection, making sure they have found the best version of the seaweed or freshwater macroalgae that they need. One that has the properties you're looking for, of course, whether that's for medicines or animal feed or for making materials, but also one that will grow well where you need it to grow, whether that's here at the farm or in a bioremediation pond or on ropes in the ocean for a seaweed farm.
0: Almost everything we're doing with ulva here, so the study that Chris has talked with you about, but more broadly in our research program, all started with actually working out what species do we want to grow. So there's, as I said, around um, 20, 19, 20-ish species of ulva in New Zealand. Most of them are fairly widely distributed, so found all throughout New Zealand, they're, they're quite common species. But we don't know which ones of these are going to be really good to grow for aquaculture, because how we grow it here is, is quite different to how it grows naturally. Normally the stuff is attached usually to a rock or some other hard substrate. Um, you do get free floating blooms as well. but and it's most natural habitat, it's growing attached. It's not being bubbled around and moved around and all those things. And so before we could start doing any of these applications, we needed to actually isolate out and identify some species that would be good to grow. This may sound like it's a really easy thing. You can just go down and find a big bunch of, you know, sea lettuce that's blooming in the harbour and pick that up, and and that's what we did to a point, but that doesn't always work. And so the species that bloom or grow really well in the natural environment might not be the best ones that you would expect that actually grow well in the conditions that we grow it under.
1: To illustrate this with a real example, Rebecca talks me through the early selection process for the species of ulva that Chris is now making into pills to send to Lincoln University for the trials.
0: What we did was collect a whole range of different samples from different habitats up and down the Bay of Plenty coast, brought them back here and first of all saw which ones could we actually keep in culture. So we started with 24 different samples that we brought back, I think 18 of them we managed to keep in culture which is quite good. And then from that we did testing of their growth rates. So we did a whole range of trials, comparing them in a few different morphologies, a few different ways that we grew them, and looked at which ones grew best. And what was really, really interesting was out of the 24 that we collected, I think we had eight species. And so for the growth trials, we were testing multiple individuals or cultivars of the same species, but maybe from a different place or from a slightly different environment. And we actually found quite large differences, not only between the species, but also between individuals collected from different places or different environments within each species. So how long would that have taken to identify the species that you want, or the individual within a species that you want to grow up and scale up? Yeah, it's a little bit of a process, so um, there's field work to go and collect the samples. Um, Sometimes we can get quite a lot of biomass to start a a culture. Other times we're talking about a few little strands of (laughs) a filamentous one that we've scraped off a rock. So that process of then bringing it back here, giving it a bit of a clean, so we're not bringing any other contaminants or other seaweeds that are kind of attached because we don't want to grow those. And then scaling that up uh, can take, you know, sometimes it's really quick. They are really fast growing, but it can take a few weeks um, or even longer, you know, up to a month. Uh, And then we ran the trials uh, where we, for this particular experiment, we grew them uh, for three consecutive weeks and measured growth rates each week under the same conditions. Ulva, Rebecca says,
1: is actually reasonably quick to work with because it is such a fast-growing species and doesn't necessarily need to reproduce.
0: It keeps getting bigger and then it kind of fragments and breaks up into smaller pieces and each of those pieces keep getting bigger. So it can grow like that um, for a very, very long time, like in the space of years, you can keep growing in that way and it will stay healthy and continue to grow. It can also reproduce, so we can get it to release spores and they then grow up again as well and that's a fairly fast process, but um, you don't need to do that to have continued growth, which is really nice. It makes it a really easy species uh, to work with. You just need to keep it in its happy spot <laughs> with the conditions it likes, and then it, you know, can maintain really high growth rates. So it's fairly low maintenance and easy care species compared to some others. The
1: some others here includes kelp, which Rebecca has also been working with to coax it through its life cycle as part of yet another project involving farming kelp in the ocean, freshwater algae for cleaning up wastewater. Red seaweed for methane emission reduction. Ocean-based kelp farming for agricultural products. Sea lettuce pills to treat metabolic disorders. Who knew that there were so many potential things you could do with macroalgae? Plus the snacks, of course. And with all of Marie's mentions of incorporating seaweed into food, and the sign in the team's office door that said, Smart people eat seaweed. I thought I would jokingly make a cookbook comment. Although I'm looking forward to the Coastal Marine Field Station recipe book.
2: When oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do have um, another student who's looking at the digestibility of the protein in a range of different seaweed. And we have a summer student this year who is making some seaweed broth as well. So, um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll make sure to put something together.
1: <laughs> something to keep an eye out for. Thanks to Dr. Marie Magnuson, Dr. Chris Glasson, Dr. Rebecca Lawton, and Peter Randup of the Entrepreneurial University's Macroalgal Biotechnology Program at the University of Waikato, Tauranga. This episode was produced by me, and Cunningham. Thanks to Liz Garton for editing help. And the sound engineering was by Phil Benj. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series. The Hour Changing World podcast could be found on any of your regular, favourite podcast platforms. And following the show means the weekly episodes will be there, ready and waiting for you. Check out the show's website at rnzconz hourchangingworld for photos related to this episode. And the website is also where you can find our massive back catalogue of episodes free to explore, plus where you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Come and say hi. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Cancannon. Kia pai, tō wiki. Botox Cosmetic. Out Botulinum Toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.